Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Proclaim the good news of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His wonders among all peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Amen. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sermon text this morning is the beginning of the ninth chapter of the book of Revelation. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. And the fifth angel trumpeted, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the land, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And out of the smoke came forth locusts upon the land, and power was given to them, as the scorpions of the land have power. And they were told that they should not hurt the grass or the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. And they will long to die and death flees from them. And the appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads, as it were, crowns like gold. Their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women. And their teeth were like the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates like the breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is the power to hurt men for five months. They have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek he has the name Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come after these things. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we pray that you would guide and lead us as we seek to understand your word to us. We thank you that you give us this unveiling of Jesus Christ, this unveiling of your work in history in this last book of the Bible. We pray that you would give us eyes to see past appearances and see to see the true conflicts that we face, to see the true nature of our enemies and the true nature of the battle that's around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation is divided up into four large visions. There are two visions of Jesus. Jesus as the Son of Man appears to John on Patmos and dictates to him a series of letters that he's supposed to send to the churches of Asia. Then Jesus appears as the Lamb who has ascended into heaven to take the book and to open the seals and to initiate all the things that are going to happen shortly after John records these visions. Then the book turns from a focus on Jesus to a focus on the bride. First of all, there's a vision of a false bride, Babylon, the apostate church, the unfaithful church, the unfaithful bride. 
And then the book ends with another vision, a final vision, that shows us the true bride coming down from heaven, New Jerusalem. This vision that we're looking at in chapter 9 takes place in the midst of the second of those great visionary sequences, the vision of the Lamb. That begins several chapters earlier when John is swept up into heaven. He's taken by the Spirit into heaven, and he enters into a worship service, and he sees the angels of heaven bowing down and singing praise and speaking praise to the enthroned one, the one who is enthroned on the throne in the midst of the thrones of heaven. But there's a problem in heaven, as we've uh, seen in previous sermons on Revelation. There's a problem in heaven. There's an unopened book to the right of the one who is enthroned. It's sealed, and there is no one in heaven or earth or under the earth who can open the book. No one is worthy to open the book. And John begins to lament Because if the book goes unopened, then all of God's plans and promises are going to be stymied. Whatever that book contains needs to be unleashed on the world for redemption to take place. John mourns because the book is closed. But then he's told that a worthy reader of the book, a worthy one, has been found who can open the book and who can see within the book and who can reveal the contents and unleash the contents on the world. He's told that this worthy one is the lion of the tribe of Judah, but when he turns, he sees the lamb. This is Jesus, now ascended. John has seen the ascension of Jesus from heaven. He's been taken back in time, and he's seen the ascension of Jesus as the lamb offering offering himself as a sacrifice in heaven, and the lamb takes the book and begins opening the seals. And as he opened the seals, he unleashes the church led by the Spirit onto the world. The first four seals are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Those four horsemen are not signs of the end. These are not signs of the destruction of the world. This is the beginning of the mission of the church. The rider on each of the horses is a portrait of the Holy Spirit, who is going out as a warrior. His war horse is the church herself. And he's a go- as he goes out as a warrior, he's going out to conquer. As he conquers, he causes division. As he causes division, he depletes his enemies. There's a famine among his enemies. And then those who resist him finally face the prospect of death and destruction. This is a vision of the early mission of the church. The fifth seal awakens the hopes of the martyrs. They see all these things happening. The world is being stirred up. Things have been calm and peaceful. They don't want things to be peaceful. They want to be vindicated. So when God begins to act, as the seals are opened, the martyrs cry out, now is the time that we're going to be vindicated. They cry out for uh, justice to be done, for their blood to be avenged. And they're told that they should not, that they have to wait uh, for a little while until more martyrs are made. And as we saw a few weeks ago, those more martyrs are the 144,000 who are sealed in the sixth seal. The lamb opens the sixth seal, and that follows immediately after the fifth seal. And the sixth seal reveals God preparing 144,000 martyrs taken from the 12 tribes of Israel who are going to be those the completion of the number of the martyrs, the number that has to be completed before the end comes. Now, as we're watching the seals being opened, we might think that this is the revelation of the contents of the book. That when the lamb opens the first seal, a little bit of the book begins. He opens the second seal, a little bit of the book is revealed. 
But that's not the way we should understand this. If we were watching this on in a, in a film, the Lamb would have the book, and as he opened the seals, the, the, it's a scroll. The scroll would be opening a little bit at a time, but it can't be read until it's completely open. Uh, Revelation is a vision, but it's not nonsense. And if there's a sealed scroll in Revelation, it acts like a sealed scroll, and it can't be read until it's completely open. As the Lamb breaks open the seals, the things that are needed to prepare for the reading of the book are being disclosed. The beginning of the mission of the church is the preparation for the revelation of what's in the book. The book hasn't actually revealed until later in Revelation. When the scroll appears again in chapter 10, the scroll appears in the right hand of an angel, a strong angel, who comes down from heaven and hands the book to John. And John eats the book. It's sweet to his taste, but it's bitter in his stomach. And then John is told to prophesy. What is he going to prophesy? Well, he's going to prophesy what's just gone into him. The words that have just gone into him are now going to come out. And so it's after chapter 10 and chapters 11 and following that we begin to see the contents of the book. That's the new thing that's being revealed. Those are the things that are shortly to take place. But that's not what's happening here. All this is preparation for the proclamation of what's in the book. The seals are open, the scroll is ready to be read, but the scroll is not read. In fact, the scroll is never read by the Lamb. The Lamb doesn't speak a single word in Revelation. You'd think if he's got the scroll, if he's opening the seals, if he's the worthy one, he should be the one to read out what's on the scroll, but he's not. The only time we hear the, seal, the, the, book being, uh, the book being spoken out and prophesied is from the mouth of John. This is the scroll of the destiny of the human race. This is the scroll about what's going to happen to the old world as it makes a transition into the new world, the old covenant world as it makes a transition into the new covenant world. And it's not Jesus who's telling us about it, it's John. Jesus has entrusted the proclamation and the disclosure of the secrets of the new world to a human being. He's disclosed, he's given that commission. He doesn't take that commission to himself. He doesn't read the book himself. He gives it to John. John is the one who speaks out the contents of the book. But even after the scroll is completely opened, all the seals have been broken, there's a pause in heaven, there's a silence in heaven for a half hour, and we think we're going to hear the contents of the book, but we don't. Something else has to happen before the world, the land, is prepared for the book to be completely uh, read out by John. And that's the section that we're in here. Before the book is read, excuse me, before the book is read out, there is a fanfare of trumpets. Think about a great uh, uh, moment in, uh, in a, uh, a great ceremony of proclamation by a king. The king opens the scroll. He doesn't immediately begin to speak or the town crier. He goes around the town with a scroll that he opens up, but he's got a trumpeter right next to him who's going to proclaim and trumpet out the news that something important is going to be read. The trumpets are still part of the preparation for the disclosure of the book. In the Bible, trumpets call people to attention. Trumpets call people to attention for battle before Israel goes out to battle. Trumpets are blown and the soldiers come together. That's what's happening in Revelation. Soldiers are being gathered together. Martyr soldiers are being gathered together. 
trumpets are blown at the beginning of a worship service, the tabernacle had particular silver trumpets that were blown uh, in order for to gather the people for worship. The trumpets were blown over the sacrifices as they ascended to God. Trumpets gather people for worship, and that's what's happening here. The trumpets are being blown to gather the worshipers, the martyrs, the new new covenant Christian priests who are going to do the ultimate act of worship, the ultimate act of sacrifice by being priests of their own sacrifice, by giving themselves just as Jesus had done for uh, for the sake of Jesus. Uh, Trumpets announce the coming of the Lord. When the Lord comes down on Sinai, he comes down with a blast of a trumpet that's so loud that the people want it to stop. It's too loud for us. Make, make, the, make the Lord stop talking to us. It's deafening. And that's what's happening here too. As the trumpets are blown, they're announcing that the kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdoms of the Lord and of his Christ. The trumpets are being blown in order to prepare for the contents of the book to be revealed. How do they prepare for the contents of the book to be revealed. One of the ways they prepare is by uh, announcing and disclosing judgments that are designed to bring the people of the land to repentance. These are beginning judgments that are supposed to stir up the people to repentance. It doesn't work, as we learn at the end of chapter 9. After all these plagues, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, did they did not repent of their murders or of their sorceries or of their immoralities or of their thefts. Their hearts are being hardened. These judgments are coming, but instead of responding by turning to the Lord, by worshiping the Lamb, instead of turning to Jesus, they harden themselves against the Lord and they're being prepared for this final judgment that's going to fall later on in the book of Revelation. Fittingly, The plagues that bring this hardening are plagues that resemble the plagues of Egypt. This is preparation for another Passover. The martyrs are going to be like a great Passover sacrifice. And the plagues are preparing for that moment when the last plague, the plague of the martyrs, falls on the land. The first four trumpets announce the coming of various plagues. Hail falls from heaven in the first trumpet. At the second trumpet, something like a great mountain burning with fire is thrown into the sea, and the sea turns to blood. That should sound a little familiar. And the third trumpet is blown, and a star falls from heaven into the springs of water and pollutes the waters, the springs and the rivers in the land, so that they become poisonous. So no one can drink the water. They get poisoned instead of being refreshed by the water. The fourth trumpet blows and there's darkness because a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars are smitten. The lights begin to go out. These are Egyptian-like plagues that are falling on the land. And they're also hitting the different parts of the cosmos. They're hitting the main, uh, the main regions of the world. When God made the world, he made a world that's a three-decker universe, heaven above the earth beneath and waters under the earth. And as these plagues fall... These plagues strike each of those regions. There's hail and fire coming from heaven. The sea is polluted and becomes like blood. The land waters, the river waters, which are waters within the land, waters that refresh the land, waters that make the land fruitful, those are poisoned by a star that falls from heaven. 
So the waters are being destroyed. The the land is being uh, polluted and poisoned. And the stars are falling out of heaven. A world is being destroyed as these Egyptian plagues fall. But what world is it? Are the trumpets announcing the end of the universe? Are they talking about actual physical events of hailstorms and mountains actually moving out from the land and being thrown out into the water? Are talking about earthquakes that makes make mountains collapse into the sea? These are visionary pictures of what's happening in Israel. And we have an anchor for understanding what these are referring to. I remember back a few weeks ago when we looked at Revelation 5, and six, and looked at the opening of the first few seals. The anchor is the ascension of Jesus. Jesus as the Lamb appears in heaven, and what happens in Revelation after that is a visionary review of what happens basically in the book of Acts. The church goes out on its mission, it arouses opposition, and that opposition is what we're looking at in the, in the plagues that are associated with the trumpets. When a mountain, a smoking mountain, is thrown out into the sea and turns the sea to blood, we should read that in terms of Old Testament symbolism. What is the smoking mountain? Sinai was a smoking mountain. Zion is a smoking mountain. It has sacrifices being offered up from the temple. Uh, the uh, um, An altar is a smoking mountain. Zion, Jerusalem, is the smoking mountain that's being tossed out into the sea of Gentiles, And when the smoking mountain is tossed out into the sea of Gentiles, it turns the sea to blood. This is not what the Jews are supposed to do to the Gentiles. The Jews are supposed to witness to the Gentiles, to turn the Gentiles to worship God. They're not supposed to turn them bloody, defile them. But that's what's happening as the Sinai people, the people associated with old Jerusalem, are engulfed by the sea of the Gentiles. They make the Gentiles more violent The violence of the Jews spreads out to the violence of the Gentiles. We've seen this in the Gospels. Who was behind the murder of Jesus? The Jewish leaders. It's Pilate who does it. It's Pilate who gives the sentence. But it's the Jewish leaders that urge it on. This is is the people of the smoking mountain making the sea bloody, bloodying Pilate's hands in spite of his efforts to wipe it off. When a star falls into the springs of water and pollutes the springs of water. What's that? What's going on there? It's a destruction of the land water, but what historical event is it referring to? Well, the rivers and the springs of the land are the things, as I said, that make the land fruitful. They're what make the land a land flowing with milk and honey. The central spring, the source of all life in Israel, is the temple. And if the temple is polluted, if the temple waters get polluted, then the whole land, the whole water system of the land is polluted. This is a picture of a satanic infestation of the temple that turns the temple's life and teaching into a source, it turns the temple into a source of death and destruction and falsehood instead of a source of life for the land. What we're looking at in Revelation 8 and 9 and the trumpet scene are the the opposition to the early church, the opposition to Peter and uh, Peter and John, the opposition to Stephen that ends with the murder of Stephen, the provocation of Jewish leaders to try to get the Gentiles to oppose the church. And that's how we should read our sermon text as well. We finally get into the sermon text in Revelation chapter 9. The, ninth, the beginning of chapter 9 gives us the fifth seal, a fifth trumpet, 
When the fifth trumpet is blown, John again sees a star falling from heaven. This time it doesn't fall in the springs of water. It falls down instead into the well of the abyss. It goes all the way down into hell. This angel was identified as Abaddon or Apollyon, Hebrew and Greek words that mean destruction. This is a picture of Satan as destroyer. And where has Satan fallen? Satan has fallen into a place that unleashes a cloud of smoke. He's fallen into a place that is full of these composite creatures. They're locusts, they're scorpions, they're locorpions. They're both locusts and scorpions. They're locusts, but they can't hit, hit, uh, eat any green thing. Instead, they prey on human beings like scorpions. They have faces like men. They have hair like women. They have teeth like lions. These are infernal versions of the cherubim. This is an infernal host. Uh, it's an infernal host. It's a hellish host instead of a heavenly host. Where have we seen this scene before? A place where there's a great cloud smoking like a furnace, a place that's full of composite creatures, strange, bizarre beings that we don't see uh, around us every day. Ezekiel saw it. We heard this in our Old Testament lesson. Ezekiel saw the true version of what John sees here. Ezekiel saw the glory cloud coming toward him as he, as he was by the river Kibar in Babylon. He saw the faces of the cherubim within that cloud. What John sees is an infernal parody of that glory cloud. What John sees is another vision of the satanic infestation of the temple. Instead of being filled with the glory of the Lord, the temple is now filled with the smoke of the destroyer. Instead of being filled with the cherubim and seraphim appraising God, it's now filled with demons and it becomes a source for demons to go out and prey on the people of the land. We're still in the book of Acts. We're still looking at the sequence of events that happened in the early church. The Jews initially tried to stop the Christians by simply telling them to uh, not to preach anymore. They tried to put them in jail, but the jails kept opening up and they weren't able to keep them there. What's the next stage of opposition? What's the next stage of uh, resistance to the gospel? It's a stage of internal corruption. The teaching that flows out from Jerusalem, as Paul says, some men came from Jerusalem, were teaching that you had to keep the law, the Gentiles have to keep the law, and have to be circumcised in order to be worshipers of Jesus. What we're seeing in the vision at the beginning of chapter 9 is the satanic inspiration for what is known as the Judaizing movement in the letters of Paul. It's It's a satanic inspiration coming from the temple that has now been turned into a stairway to hell instead of a ladder to heaven. But John doesn't leave us there. John doesn't leave us with this vision of this terrifying host of demons inspiring and moving men to teach falsehood and to sting and to torment. When the sixth trumpet is blown, we see another army coming out. It's also a pretty terrifying army. It's a cavalry like the first vision, like the, like the vision of the, of the infernal host. It's a cavalry. They're composite creatures. The, uh, the horses have serpents for tails and their serpent heads bite people as they go by. They're breathing out fire and smoke and brimstone. This looks like it could be yet another demonic army going out 
uh, uh, cross from the from the river Euphrates crossing over into the land. I think it's the opposite. I think it's the angelic army that the Lord has raised up in order to fight against the infernal army that comes out from the abyss, that comes out from the stairway to hell. The army that we see in the sixth seal is made up of, it's led by angels. It's made up of people who are coming from the Euphrates. That's the journey that Abraham came uh, when he came from uh, Ur of the Chaldees down into the land. He crossed over the Euphrates into the land. When the exiles came back from Babylon, they crossed over the Euphrates into the land. This is not a demonic army. This is an angelic army, and it's a holy army. We know it's a holy army because it's numbered. Uh, Anything in the Bible that actually has a number attached to it is a holy thing or holy place. Holy spaces are the places that are measured. A holy people are the people that are counted, like in the book of Numbers. This, uh, This cavalry is counted that indicates to us as readers of the Bible that this is an angelic host. What John is seeing in these two visions, in other words, is the uh, behind-the-scenes story of what was happening in the middle chapters of the book of Acts. There were men coming from Jerusalem, inspired by this demonic teaching, stinging and tormenting men, but the Lord unleashed an angelic host to oppose them. If you read the book of Acts, it looks like you're just looking at men uh, battling over uh, the true teaching of the gospel, men battling over uh, the uh, 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 Jews trying to oppose the church to protect their own, uh, their own position, Christians being faithful to Jesus proclaiming the gospel. But John shows us that there's much more going on. We live in a crowded universe. And the book of Acts looks like it's just a contest between human beings, but it's not. It's also a spiritual warfare. John is showing the behind the scenes scenes behind the battles of the book of Acts. He's showing the angelic and demonic armies that are in battle behind the battles of Paul and the Judaizers, behind the battles of the Jewish leaders and Peter and John. All of the battles of the book of Acts are not just battles between human beings, but they are spiritual warfare. We fight not against flesh and blood, Paul says, but against rulers, powers, world forces of darkness in heavenly places. Uh, Revelation is talking about things that happened in the first century. This is a uh, gigantic spiritual battle that happened. Even before, It was already happening before John saw these visions. He's still looking back into his own past and getting a glimpse of what was happening behind the scenes. But even though these are visions of the first century that give us a clue to the combat and battle that we have in our own lives and in our own times. As Pastor Lust said at the beginning... Uh, What we do here in worship is the most political thing that we do all week. Because what we do here in worship is engage in holy war, spiritual war, in prayer and praise, in worship, in gathering at the Lord's table, in receiving and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is spiritual warfare. And if you can't see demons and angels battling out, It's because we haven't been given eyes to see. Because that's what's actually happening every time we gather for church. Every time there's a trumpet, we happen to have a literal as well as a metaphorical trumpet to gather us for worship. Whenever there's a trumpet that gathers us here, we're being gathered for spiritual war as well as spiritual worship. We're being gathered to do battle along with the angels and hosts of heaven against our human enemies 
and also the, the demons and hosts of hell. That's actually happening as we worship before the Lord. But we shouldn't be uh, fearful of this. This shouldn't scare us that there are demons about, that we have to do battle with spiritual forces in heavenly places. We fight from a position of strength. In fact, we fight from a position of having already won the battle. As Eric Venable reminded us a couple months ago, Jesus has won the battle. Jesus has defeated Satan. And if Satan continues to oppose the church, it's, it's a completely hopeless effort. His resistance is useless because Jesus has already won. We should recognize that there are spiritual forces at work. We should not be frightened by them. Some might object that if we think that we're, our cultural battles, for example, are spiritual battles, that might result in us demonizing our enemies. We begin to think of our enemies as demonic. I think Revelation actually does the opposite. Revelation shows us that there are actual demons at work. It's not that we demonize the human enemies. It's that there are actual demons at work in the spiritual and cultural and political battles that we fight. And that can also actually give us compassion and charity toward our human enemies. Think about Jesus reacted in our gospel reading, for example. How Jesus reacted to the demon-possessed. He did not think of the human beings as his enemies. Rather, Jesus liberated the human beings from the real enemy, the demon who was possessing them. When we recognize that there are spiritual forces in these battles, we can have, char- we can have charity and compassion for enemies because we recognize that they may be in the grip of some demonic delusion. They may be enslaved by Satan or by demons. Not Maybe not literally demon-possessed, but they're enslaved by delusions that Satan has put abroad. And we can be on their side. We can take their side against their enemies, the demons that are misleading them, the satanic delusions that guide them. Revelation is, in the Greek, is called the apocalypse. And the word apocalypse means an unveiling. The apocalypse unveils Jesus Christ. That's what the opening line of Revelation tells us. The revelation, the apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Revelation unveils the bride. But Revelation also unveils the enemy of the lamb and the enemy of the bride. It unveils the false bride as a false bride. It unveils the beasts as beasts. It unveils these movements in the early church as inspired by demons. The book of Revelation is teaching us to have an apocalyptic imagination, to recognize that there are things going on behind the veil of of our of appearances, behind the veil of our experience. We learn to recognize that there are demons and angels and other spiritual forces at work. And that prepares us, fittingly, it prepares us for the battles that we face. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for this unveiling of Jesus Christ in the pages of Revelation. We thank you, too, that you have unveiled to us the truth of our battles. Uh, We pray that you would give us eyes to see the true scale of the battles and conflicts that we're involved in, both in our personal lives and in the uh, uh, life of our nation and the life of the world. And we pray that we would, uh, recognizing that, we would respond with suitable spiritual weapons. They would take up the arms that you have given us, the arms of truth, 
uh, the arm, uh, arms of the gospel. They would give us, uh, make us uh, 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 constant in prayer so that we may resist those enemies that oppose us. We pray that you would call us together, uh, gather us together weekly for worship, for battle, to do battle with your enemies and ours so that the world would see your kingdom come. The nations of this world would become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. As God's royal priesthood, let us stand together for prayer as we intercede on behalf of the church and the world. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we give you praise and thanks for all your goodness and tender mercies. We bless you for the love that created us and sustains us day by day. We praise you for the gift of your Son, our Savior, through whom you have made known your truth and grace. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, our Comforter, for the Church, which is the Body and Bride of Christ, for the means of grace, the Word, Baptism, and the Eucharist, for the lives of all faithful and godly people, and for the promise of resurrection and the hope of the life to come. O Lord, help us to treasure in our hearts all that Christ Jesus has done for us and enable us to show our thankfulness by lives that are given completely to your service. O Father, save, defend, and grow your church, purchased with the priceless blood of Jesus Christ. Give her pastors endowed with your Holy Spirit and strengthen her through their ministry. Give her ruling elders who shepherd the flock faithfully and deacons who show mercy to the needy. Make your church perfect in love and in all good works and establish her in the faith delivered to the saints. Fill her with mercy for the lost and compassion for the poor. Sanctify and unite your people in all the world that one holy Catholic and apostolic church may bear witness to you, the God and Father of all. O Lord, we do humbly intercede before you on behalf of all sorts and conditions of people that you would be pleased to make your ways known unto them, your salvation to all nations. Send forth your light and your truth into all the earth. Raise up, we pray, faithful servants to labor in the gospel at home and in distant lands, that the light of the gospel may fill the earth. We especially pray for persecuted saints throughout the world, our brothers and sisters who, because of their loyalty to Christ, are attacked and slandered and made to suffer. Throw down the false gods, the idols who lead people and cultures astray. Trample Satan under our feet. Protect and provide for your people in every nation that your church might flourish and that Christ might inherit the nations as his promised inheritance. We especially pray this day for Peru Mission and the work of Wes Baker. We pray for Christ, uh, for Church of Christ in Porto Alegre, Brazil. We pray for the work of the Joint Eastern European Project, for Ralph Smith and Mitaki Evangelical Church in Tokyo, Japan, for Pastor Sansanich and his church in the Ukraine, for Pastor Pavel Bartosik and his church in Poland, for Pastor Steve Jeffrey and Emmanuel Church in North London. Indeed, Lord, for all who seek to proclaim your good news and spread Christ's reign to the ends of the earth, provide for your servants, protect them, and make their ministries fruitful. Lord, we ask you to show mercy to our nation, these United States. Grant our land repentance that this nation might be discipled by your people in righteousness, truth, and honor. Grant us leaders who fear you and love your word. Undo wicked laws and unjust judgments. Give us grace that we might turn from the idolatries that stain our culture and destroy our lives. Freely grant your blessings to us, your church, in this land, that as a people set apart by the word, our holy lives might witness to your gospel. 
be a shield of protection for us that our freedoms might be preserved and that we might lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. Rebuild marriage and true family life in our culture. Help us to turn from selfish lust, from greed, from violence, from dishonesty, from laziness and sloth, from pride, from willful stupidity. Forgive our foolish trust in military might and in technology and in elected leaders. In the slaughter of the unborn in our land. Make our laws and courts reflective of your perfect justice. In the senseless violence and bloodshed in our cities. In the strife between, between different classes and races who ought to live together in harmony and peace. And through your people make provision for the poor and needy. For we know only you can do these things, great God, in your power and wisdom. Lord, we are deeply grateful for the land we live in, for its heritage, its freedoms, its prosperity, its abundance of resources, its diversity. We also know in many ways we have abandoned our heritage. We have forgotten you in the midst of our prosperity. We call good evil and evil good. And so we ask that you would show us mercy. Do not judge us as our sins deserve. Be kind and patient that many might be brought to repentance. Spare our cities for the sake of the righteous. O Lord, we pray that we might kiss the sun, indeed that our rulers might kiss the sun as well, that his wrath would not flare up against us, but that we may know his peace. May King Jesus reign unchallenged over these United States and indeed over every nation under heaven. O Lord, bless the ministries of this church, Trinity Presbyterian, that we might be the kind of church you call us to be, the kind of church our city needs us to be. May we worship you in the beauty of holiness so you are enthroned upon our praises. May the mouths of babes and infants among us silence the foe and the avenger. May your word thunder from our pulpit with power. May you use our Sunday school and our small groups and Bible studies, Wednesday Vespers, Theopolis, and all the various gatherings of this congregation to edify and equip the saints for service in the world. May we prosper and know your peace. May you provide for us abundantly, granting us unity and strength. God of all comfort and protection, we now bring before you all who are in any way afflicted, all persons oppressed with poverty, sickness, unemployment, or other trouble of body or mind. We especially this day pray for the healing of Zoe Shaoku. We thank you that his life has been spared. We thank you he's getting better. But we pray that you would enable him to make a full recovery soon. And we pray that the perpetrator of this act of senseless violence would be brought to justice. Father, we pray that you would hear us as we name others uh, and, and their needs and our hearts before you now. Lord, we pray that you would be with those who hurt and suffer, granting them every consolation and comfort of the gospel, and that you would overrule all of our sufferings to our ultimate good. Oh, Father, we rejoice with thanksgiving in all those who have loved and served you in your church on earth and who now rest from their labors. Keep us in fellowship with all your people, the communion of the saints, and bring us at length to the joy of your everlasting kingdom. All these things and whatever else you see that we need, grant us, O oh Father, for the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, who died and rose again and now lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, age after age. And now hear us, Father, as we are bold to pray that which our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, 
as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.